In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. have indeed found no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson and this is episode 302 as always brought to you by our amazing patreon backers we have another incredible episode for you this week so let's get right down to what's coming at you this week we get down with brass roots district live in the lot 73 in the los angeles arts district Check in with Kent Bai of the Voices of VR podcast. Chat with game designer and author Laura E. Hall about her new book, Planning Your Escape. And check in with Indiecade Sam Roberts about the season finale of Iron Game Designer, which is happening this Monday. Plus, the pick of the week, an immersive 101, and a few other surprises along the way. But first, here are your headlines. Hello, this is Catherine Yu, Executive Editor of No Persinium, and here are your immersive headlines for July 16th. The National Endowment for the Arts in the United States recently released its report, Tech as Art, Supporting Artists Who Use Technology as a Creative Medium. Based upon two years of research by Dot Connector Studio, in partnership with Eight Bridges Workshop, this ambitious project was jointly funded by both the Knight Foundation and the Ford Foundation. The intent of the report is to document the work of artists who make, interrogate, and disrupt contemporary digital technologies for creative and aesthetic purposes and whose practices are enmeshed in the possibilities inherent in technology itself. A hearty congratulations goes out to the recently announced 2021 Emmy nominees for the Outstanding Interactive Program Award. These include Inside COVID-19 by Wisdom VR, Space Explorers, the ISS Experience by Felix and Paul Studios, and welcome to the Blumhouse Live by Little Cinema. It's time to rejoice, immersive-loving New Yorkers. Why? Because Punch Drunk's long-running production Sleep No More has officially announced its plans to return home to the McKittrick Hotel later this year on October 4th. This show has been on hiatus since March 2020. K-pop fans also have something to celebrate as well. Signature Theater in Virginia has announced that it will present the pre-Broadway engagement of K-pop the Musical, K-Pop the Musical first played off-Broadway in 2017 in an immersive production from Ars Nova, Mai Theatre Company, and the Widget Collective. Dates for this upcoming pre-Broadway run have yet to be announced. We've got even more news of openings this time in Vegas. The location-based VR company Sandbox expects to open a new entertainment center at the Venetian Resort by early summer. Sources expect Sandbox to take over the location recently vacated by The Void. And also in Vegas news, even though their Los Angeles location remains closed, Lost Spirits Distillery plans to open their new Vegas branch at Area 15 in mid-August. Described by Smithsonian Magazine as a high-end Willy Wonka experience for adults, this immersive tasting tour is heavily influenced by theme park design. The company also hopes to reopen its Los Angeles location before the end of the year. Lastly, we turn our attention to Little Amal, a puppet representing a refugee girl who is about to walk 8,000 kilometers as part of an art piece called The Walk, starting later this month. Amal will trek from the Syria and Turkey border all the way to Manchester, England in a moving theater show of solidarity with asylum speakers. Little Amal, who actually stands 12 feet tall, will bear a single message. Don't forget about us. And these are your immersive headlines for July 16th. We'll see you next week. Thank you, Catherine. We'll hear more from Catherine later in the show. Just so you know, one more story broke after we recorded that segment. L.A. County will return to masks for public spaces indoors to combat an uptick in COVID-19. Thanks, it is believed, to the Delta variant. Event producers are adjusting their plans accordingly. This is a reminder for everyone everywhere to stay nimble in your designs and do your part in combating the pandemic. We are all in this together. That is more true than you might want to admit. All right. (laughs) Not to be a downer. It's stressful. I know. 
Believe me, I know. And now, our top story of the week. What you're hearing now is a swinging nine-piece funk band filling the air of L.A.'s Arts District. From inside a parking lot just down the block from the Earth Cafe and across the street from the Madcap Motel, people stop to ask, what's going down in there? The answer is the Brassroots District, who on this night in 1973 are opening for Sly and the Family Stone. First and foremost, I want people to have fun. That's Monica Miklas, the director and one of the producers of Brassroots District. We've been starved of fun, and everybody needs a night or an afternoon outside, dancing, being joyful, being in connection with other human bodies in a safe way. Miklas is known to LA immersive theater goers for dramatic work like Fire Season, a meditation on climate change. So it's not a surprise that Brassroots District is facing a little musical family drama of their own. This story has some teeth. There's, there's some meat there. There's some commentary on our times and on the times that these characters were living in, if you dig for it. And that I, I'm really stoked about that, about first and foremost, giving people just a fun, joyful night out. And then if they look for it, a little meat on the bone. We'll get back to the meat on the bone in a second, but first I need to introduce you to Copper Jones. What's going on, my brothers and sisters in funk? Better known to no-pro listeners as Ari Herstand. Yes, this is the part where I let you know Ari has been backing us for years. And while he's never told me this directly, I know it's because he's been working on Brassroots District, or something like it, for all that time. So I went to New Orleans about five years ago to write a book I needed to get out of L.A., and when I was there, every morning I ran the streetcar tracks listening to 70s funk soul. Every night I went out and saw the brass bands, the funk bands in New Orleans. Um, I've been a singer-songwriter uh, most of my career. I came home. I knew I wanted to start a funk band. But why make it easy? He got together with his friend and creative partner Andrew Lieb, and the two started jamming. It's not just a funk band that exists in modern day. What if we try to make this thing uh, like this is a band that existed in the 70s and try to freak people out, try to make people kind of wonder in, in disbelief, do, do they exist now, did they exist back then? And we kind of went down this rabbit hole. We knew at the beginning we wanted this thing to be a melding of our favorite things. Ari was also a theater kid, so. If you're thinking, is that Andrew Lieb, artist manager by day, co-creator of the Brassroots District Universe by night? You'd be right on. Bringing it together just made sense. I didn't know Immersive that much when, at the beginning of this thing, and then it was obviously a whole wide world. It's been a long road to get here. Starts and stops and different creative teams. Ari even spent 2019 successfully lobbying for musicians in the wake of California's AB5 law, which played havoc with freelancers. And then the pandemic added its special blend of ongoing chaos. This version was originally going to be a drive-in show, and then the rules changed. They may very well change again. But the heart remains. Yes, it's been incredibly difficult. Uh, we want the music to be high quality and competitive like any other uh, band would be. It's all original music, and we want the immersive element and the acting to stand out as something that was authentic and real. So to have it all happen at once in this type of format was definitely a task, but we you know, brought on an amazing crew, an amazing cast, and amazing musicians, and made it all happen. I am a huge lover of immersive theater. Daisha Veronica is part of that amazing crew. She's the writer of Brassroots District, Live in the Lot 73. The project just seemed so cool, getting the opportunity to go back into the 70s, and they just seemed so excited about creating this very authentic experience. You know, honestly, all of the conceptual stuff was there. And I just, I love a good challenge. So it was intimidating to a sense to embark in something that I love, but I've never done. Um, but I just felt like they had the energy of people that if I was going to do this for the first time, I would want to work with this group of people. The production is full of joyous music and dancing. Yet the drama that's driving it is the meat on the bones that Monica Miklas told us about. And that's thanks to Daisha Veronica's deft script, which puts a rift between Copper and Ursa Major, 
the original founder of the band over a slimy record contract. With her being cast black, I think that it opened up room to really think about how black artists were treated in the music industry at that time. So we had this record executive person. And so we were trying to think about how could this person create tension through the environment. And and we knew that Ursa and Copper had been former lovers. And so that was something that was established there for me to play with. And so through some of the things that were already built into their characters, I kind of created this story about, you know, what happens when a record executive um, and then, you know, big picture, the the recording industry, like the effect that it can have on a band, both personally and then, you know, thinking about the racial dynamics of the group as well. So what we get with this incarnation of the show is this layer cake of a story with heart and teeth wrapped up in a funky party package where you will be asked to get down. Hey, love. You look like you like to break it down and have a funktastic time, am I right? Look, I'm searching for some brassies to come join me on the dance floor later. Do you want to learn the Brass Roots Boogie? Not to get into spoilers, but there's this moment in the sh- You know, I'll let Ari explain. (laughs) I had someone come up to me last night and said, I've never seen L.A. dance before, ever, at a concert. And to see everyone doing a coordinated dance at once, it's like, that was incredible. It's amazing to see it. Absolutely. I mean, my family is not, you know, typically dancers. That's Celeste Butler, who plays Ursa Major. Oh, we haven't met Ursa yet. My mama always said my voice was out of this world. Now back to the dancing. They all were on the dance floor hitting every single step. And I think after the show, that was one of the things that they pointed out first. They were just like, the fact that there's a dance that we can all learn, even though we don't necessarily dance and we can feel a part of this community. And I was like, well, that's literally the idea of the show. It's about community. It's about coming together. It's about being on one accord and just giving your all. It was Anna Zimhart's Cassie the Brassy that offered to teach us the Brass Roots Boogie. If you want to learn that dance, you can at Brass Roots District Live in the Lot, which is playing into early August in Los Angeles in the Arts District at the moment. You can find a link to tickets in the show notes. So you know, proof of vaccination is required and they are checking up on that at the door. We don't want this pandemic going on forever. We'll have more of our conversation with Deja Veronica in the podcast feed next week. Right now, stick around. There's a lot more of the podcast to come. Now let's get back to the music. Here's Brassroots District's new single, Together.
we've reached that part of the show where we check in with our friends from around the Immersiverse. This week, so happy to have Kent By, the host of the Voices of VR podcast, and perhaps the person who knows more people in the VR world than anyone else and has talked to so many folks here on the show to talk about the stories he's been tracking over the past few weeks, giving you a little insight. Kent, so good to have you on. Thanks for having me. No, it's great to be here. So I want to know what is happening like right now in VR that that uh, the listeners should be aware of and maybe even be able to go do if they are so inclined. Well, there's the last day of the XR3, which has been this immersive exhibition within the Museum of Other Realities, and it uh, goes until July 17th. Um, so they've had three different film festivals, the Tribeca Film Festival, the New Images Film Festival, and then ConXR has had an ex- exhibition from Let's Veer, uh, Veer VR, which is uh, you know showing these different immersive experiences. So there's been over 50 different experiences that you can go try out. And so this has been a really good move in terms of the virtual exhibitions of film festivals. Rather than traveling to these festivals, you can, in the comfort of your own home, be able to some, see some of the, the most world premiere immersive storytelling experiences that are out there. There's like a lot on the docket, right? Yeah, I mean, there the, each of them, there were some experiences that have been released, like Madrid Noir is now released on Oculus. Uh, but for the most part, all of the ones are still available for, they had two different sections, one in June and one in July, uh, for about 10 days each or so. And there's just a lot of really great experiences that I've been able to, to watch and check out. Uh, and also being in touch with some of the different experiences that were not a part of XR3, like the Kasunda uh, and Not uh, VR from Darkfield. So, and also there was a, a whole immersive theater piece that was a part of Tribeca uh, that was called Welcome to Respite uh, Severance Theory. So it was using the VR chat for sort of immersive theater type of experiences. So there were some experiences that are part of XR3 within Museum of Other Realities and then others that were kind of peripheral that you could download and check out. So that's just been something that I think has been a really great boon when it comes to this whole time period where you could not have to go to these places and stand in line. And even if you got in, you wouldn't be able to see everything. You kind of still have to deal with other technical difficulties, but it's just been a great to be able to have access to some of these immersive stories. Now, the MOR, Museum of Other Realities, that requires a PC to use, at least in its current incarnation and probably for the future. But the base MOR is now free, which is a big change. But this stuff, you got it's a, it's a paid DLC if, if people want to like hear the show on Friday and like, oh, I've got one day left. Yeah. So there's, there are, uh, the, the downloadable content, the DLC, and there is some overlap between the different sections. And I'd say, you know, the Tribeca has some of the most uh, latest uh, immersive storytelling uh, experiences. And if you've missed some of these and from past something like new images or the conics are, you'll be able to kind of check into some of the, the previous experiences that have been out there. But I think uh, each of them have their own kind of curatorial flavor. Uh, for me personally, I love what the, the latest immersive storytelling experiences from Tribeca. Uh, and But there's tons of great experiences uh, across all the different experiences. And you'll be able to see stuff that has been at other film festivals that you may have not also been able to attend. That's fantastic. So if, if folks uh, haven't jumped in, now's a great time to jump in. What other stories, uh, particularly for folks who maybe like, you know, they're on the theater side of things or the escape room doing the location based stuff, uh, who might not be tapped into VR? What's been one of the hot topics in VR of late? Well, there's been a bit of a kerfuffle when it comes to ads within VR. Uh, Back on (laughs) June 2nd, uh, Adam Bosworth, also known as Boz, uh, with Mark Zuckerberg had an AMA on Instagram. And someone asked about ads. uh, Are you going to have ads in VR too? And uh, Boz's response was kind of like, yeah, Chad, I think you probably are. I don't think you'll hate them as much as your question suggests that you might. Um, So there was kind of like this uh, inevitability that we're going to have ads. Uh, And then a couple of weeks later, there was the official announcement that they were going to be testing ads within virtual reality uh, with a game from Resolution Games called Blast On. And this is a paid application. So the idea that you would pay for an application and then all of a sudden you'd have ads in it, there's quite a lot of backlash. And in fact, they got review bombed with over like 60 reviews from one star reviews, uh, lots of social media pressure. And then the Resolution Games actually backed out on June 21st saying, after listening to the audience feedback, we're deciding that this is not a good fit. Now, they're not gonna completely just ignore all the ads. They're gonna maybe look at something that's a, a sort of a free game with bait and maybe try it with there. But 
on July 1st, Boz came out and said, you know, basically kind of reacting to a lot of the backlash and it it kind of blew up on them and it it surprised them. To me, it's not that surprising, but for them, they, they always believe in the ads and they believe that, you know, Boz said that they believe in the contextual and relevant ads. Uh, so it's still, you know, super early Boz said that the, the backlash was frankly too much. So, you know, this is, I think, what are the business models and and what what do the ads mean? I think the contextual and relevant aspect kind of implies that they're maybe tracking you within VR, which you know Boz is really emphasizing that you're you're going to love the ads. You know the ads are going to be great, which you know is to be debated. We'll see. But by emphasizing the experience of the ads is different than all the other implications of you know when you're in these virtual reality experiences, you're going to have everything being tracked and then put into this big sort of psychographic profile. So I think that there's a lot of subtext here in terms of you know, this is a story for why there was so much backlash and why it's such a, you know, kind of at the front lines of the consumers being able to kind of react and then drive some sort of reaction. There's, I think there's a lot to unpack around the ads and maybe you and I might do a little overtime afterwards, uh, if you got a moment, um, just for, for funsies, at least for you and me, not too long. Cause there's, there's always something else coming up, but this definitely feels like it points to some bigger stuff we were talking about before we, we turned the, the microphones on. Yeah, you know, th- there's this underlying, like, what are the ethical frameworks? What are the boundaries? And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion within the XR community around human rights approaches for, you know, uh, the Rafael Yusta from the Columbia Institute uh, have an initiative on neuro rights. He has these five different neuro rights, you know, the right to mental privacy, the right to identity, the right to agency, the right to be free from algorithmic bias, and the right to have, you know, fair and equitable access to technology. But those first three of the agency, identity, and the uh, right to mental privacy, privacy, these are, when you talk about being tracked within these experiences, uh, when they have more information on you than you know about yourself, and they're able to kind of subtly influence you, maybe below your conscious awareness, you start to kind of have this ethical line for, are you undermining someone's autonomy? Are you undermining their, their rights to mental privacy? Are you tracking their identity in such a granular way that is even more defined than they would have consent over. So I think a lot of these different issues and, and trying to take these human rights approaches are kind of on the frontier for where uh, some of these discussions are going in the future. So there was a discussion that was at RightsCon and Facebook actually came out on June 17th with a whole set of responsible innovation dimensions. They've talked about their four principles, which you know have been kind of deconstructed and really critiqued by anthropologists and tech ethicists as not really being sufficient. And so in some ways, it's a good sign that they're starting to, you know, look to human rights and the UN development, you know, sustainable development goals to be able to kind of build upon these different contextual dimensions. But it, there's still this question as to whether or not they're going to use these different frameworks as a sort of ethics washing to kind of justify something that they're already intending to do. It feels like it's so hard because to like tell what's really going on inside that company at times. I mean, we're you know, your crew probably got way better source than I am. I'm kind of a normie just watching from the outside, you know, following the tech press, following them. I'm getting the vibe that there's like some factionalization happening inside there, the same way there's sort of like factionalization around AI ethics over at Google. Who knows who's going to win? This this is contested inside these industries. Yeah, I've had a chance to talk to the privacy policy manager, Nathaniel White, and, you know, he is you know, kind of in this dialectical relationship, trying to bring forth these privacy advocate perspectives against this kind of business effort. And, you know, one of the things that Sally Applin and Catherine Flick talked about was this responsible innovation frameworks, where it's sort of like, theoretically, you're supposed to have a big red button that you're supposed to be able to push if if whatever you're doing is not going to meet these ethical standards, you basically don't launch the thing you're going to launch. And the thing that they're critiquing is that it seems like you know it's being driven by that we know that they're going to launch these things, and so it's sort of like they want to have the ethical frameworks to kind of justify it. So how much and how robust are those responsible innovation principles, and are they going to be able to have this discussion so that you know they don't just rush out and launch these things without really taking into consideration all these different potential ethical concerns? So you know we don't have much uh, optimism when we look at say the federal privacy law or the state laws like the legislators are not doing their job to be able to actually rein things in. And there's this technology pacing gap, technology is just racing forward, and there's not the conceptual frames or the policy to be able to kind of rein it in, which means we're in this phase of self-regulation. And so one of the other things I saw, like Joe Jerome was a privacy advocate, rather than working at the state privacy laws, you know, which didn't really pan out this year, he's now taking a role within uh, Facebook. So 
if we are going to be in this self-regulation phase, and for me, it's, it is at least a bit of an optimistic sign to see privacy ab- advocates like Joe Jerome go and work with internally within Facebook itself uh, to be able to advocate for some of these privacy perspectives, especially if we're not going to have any help from the government. All right. That's a good point to end on. But there's one more thing before we go. You have your thousandth, thousandth podcast episode coming up. Do you have anything special planned? I do. Yeah. So episode 1000, I'm looking back to some of the the questions and some of the answers that I got to the question I always like to ask, which is what the ultimate potential of VR is. And so, you know, there's quite a lot of answers that really struck me over the years. And I'm going to try my best to kind of just do a, a, a retrospective and a recap of some of the, the best answers I got to that, but also to help shape both the positive potentials, but also some of the concerns that we may have as well. So it should be interesting to kind of do this retrospective after 1,000 episodes uh, and more than 30 or 40 different uh, days complete if you were to go back and listen to the whole uh, backlog of all the episodes. So it's a kind of a celebration moment and uh, also to, uh, an opportunity to look back at, and see where I've been able to go over the last seven years of doing the podcast. And when do you think that's going to land? Uh, probably within the next couple of weeks or so. I'm, oh, I'm working right. on it right now. And uh, you know, as soon as I get it all lined up, I'm hoping to kind of put it out there and uh, yeah, make a little bit of a celebration out of it. it it's, it is, you know, people like base 10 uh, moments when you have 10 or a hundred, or this is a thousand for me. So it does feel like a little bit of a milestone. Just, just a little bit, Ken, just a little bit. Uh, and Ken Bike joins us from the Voices of VR podcast. You can find him at uh, voicesofvr.com, correct? Yep, that's it. Thanks. All right. We'll have you back soon, Kent. You know we love you. Awesome. Yeah, thanks for having me on. We'd like to take a moment to thank our latest Patreon backer, Amanda Albrecht. We really do all of this based on the support of our Patreon backers, the community events we create, and whatever freelancing I can cobble together. So if you love what you hear and you want us to keep us doing it, we could really use that 2 or $5 a month to keep us going. Coming up later in the cast are interviews with Laura E. Hall and Sam Roberts, Immersive 101, and more. But first, we've now reached one of our favorite parts of the show. Each week, the Review Crew meets for the Review Crew podcast. We do that live in our Discord. But while we used to just hang around and talk about the shows we had just seen and the experiences we were having, kind of trading notes on our immersive adventures, now it's a little bit more like Chopped because... During the course of that show, people are making their case for what should get to be the pick of the week on this show. And this week, the arguments were successfully argued by... Hi there, this is Blake Weil, East Coast curator for NoPro. Blake, you won the toss, as it were. Uh, and, uh, And you have the pick this week. What is the pick of the week? So this week's pick of the week is Dragon Butter by Brian Sanders Junk Troop out of Philadelphia. Uh, It is a pretty spectacular dance show taking place in a warehouse in the Northern Liberties neighborhood that combines sort of a video game aesthetic and structure with some Mm. truly spectacular dance, a little bit of German expressionist horror, and a lot of sort of fun 80s mad science camp well you sold me already but particularly around 80s mad science but what makes this pick of the week material so i get into this a little bit in my capsule review but i really don't like the term video gamey for a lot of theater i think a lot of times that refers to shows where you're being distracted from thin plots or weak characterization from a pretty simple task so you can feel like you've fulfilled something by seeing the show. Not the case with Dragon Butter. Dragon Butter manages to use these sort of video game techniques, such as a looping recursive set that almost feels like 
a cyberpunk Dark Souls stage. It's a scavenger hunt and little tasks for EXPs, like an impromptu laser gun fight against some of the dancers who are scuttling around the floor on those little body boards you might have previously used in gym class. And it really manages to take all these things and make what's in essence an avant-garde dance performance. You know, all this really beautiful lightly to non-narrative modern ballet to really make an audience have a great ability to connect with it and get something from it. And I think that that's something that Brian Sanders really has a great strength as a choreographer doing. I'd also be remiss not to mention how spectacular the ending is. I cannot spoil it in Pick of the Week because the show is still ongoing, but it is quite possibly the most kinetic finale I've ever been, I've ever had the pleasure to be a part of, let's say. And I'll let you discover what I mean by that for yourselves. All right. Well, it sounds fantastic to be perfectly honest. I wish I could. Look, I, I, I moved up to Philadelphia two days early to catch it. And I do not regret that in the slightest. That is fantastic. All right. Well, that is some serious, serious uh, endorsement right there. All right. If you want to hear more from Blake on Dragon Butter, you can hear uh, him talk about it on this week's Review Crew podcast. You will find that just one stop back here on this never-ending train that is the No Pro podcast. Uh, And uh, you will find Blake uh, also use capsule review in the Immersive Review Rundown, as he mentioned. And I'm sure Blake will be back with another pick at some point in the near future. Blake, thanks for coming through with the pick this week. Thanks for having me. Joining us now is Laura Hall, the author of Planning Your Escape. Laura, I can still remember meeting you at Indicade in Culver City many moons ago. And now here we are talking book releases. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> kind, of, kind, of, kind of amazing how it all uh, shakes out. Um, so the title of the book is Planning Your Escape, but I'd love for you to give us the the subtitle that's on the cover. Uh, I, want, I want them to hear this from you and not from me. <laughs> okay, sure. Um, so it's Planning Your Escape, Strategy Secrets to Make You an Escape Room Superstar. Okay, okay. So is this like <laughs> a Prima strategy guide? And I know I just sort of dated myself, but like a Prima strategy guide for escape rooms, like all escape rooms? Yeah, so it's it's really um, the book is in two parts. The thrust of it is that it is a strategy guide for puzzle games in general and escape rooms specifically. So it just sort of teaches you, you know, first of all, you don't have to be afraid. It's not saw. You know, you can go into an escape room and, with some reasonable amount of confidence, feel that you will get out of it. Right. And then it kind of breaks down what that means. So what does a puzzle look like? How do you recognize particular types of codes? Um, what might you expect from different types of locks? Anything from padlocks to electromagnets, right? So so sort of the basics in that way. But then also it talks a little bit about, you know, from a designer's point of view, what am I thinking, right? I'm not trying to trick you in the game. And so you should not expect that the room is trained to trick you, by which I mean don't put your finger into an electrical socket because when they say it's not a puzzle, it really isn't. Um, and then sort of broader topics like how to form a team and how to you know, figure out what your strengths and weaknesses are and how to work together. Um, then also, as I was writing that, I realized you know, I should provide a little bit of context. So there's a whole part of it that is a history of the immersive genre from ancient history to escape rooms today. Rolling back for a second, how do you how do you even go about writing a you know a strategy guide for essentially an entire category of entertainment? Right. So like traditionally I guess when we think of a strategy guide, you know, we would think of, oh, this is the guide for this particular game. Right. This is the guide for Windwalker. Uh, you know, this is the guide for Metroid, 
Nintendo just announced a new console today that we were all expecting. So that's Nintendo's on the brain <laughs> um, when, when we're recording this. So how how do you approach this um, when it's kind of a broader, you know, entire category? What, what's what's the distinction there? What did you find sure. yourself having to to do in order to communicate these kind of big concepts? Yeah, well, I mean, basically, it's a guide for how to think about stuff, right? Like all games are made of systems of rules. And, you know, it's a little bit different in an escape room that you kind of are thrown into it and you don't necessarily know what is the rule and what is not um, the same way you don't know what is a clue or a puzzle until you poke at it. Um, But fundamentally, you know, these are sort of recognizable structures. Um, There's only so many ways to lock a box is something that I (laughs) I say a lot and I say it in the book. Um, But, yeah, it basically is just teaching you how to think critically and strategically about like what makes up these games to understand the components and to get a good sense of like what's in your toolbox as a solver that you can bring to not not just an escape room but kind of any puzzle game what made you want to put this in book form and 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 not say like you know a series of youtube videos or, or a podcast yeah um I mean, one of the things, so, you know, we've, we've run an escape room. Um, our first one opened in 2014, so it was really early. And something that I noticed is that people are really intimidated by escape rooms um, and kind of nervous about them and sort of afraid to perform under pressure. And, you know, as somebody who's now played many games, I can, of course, attest that they are really fun. But I also still understand that feeling and remember kind of how scary it is, right? There's a lot of mystery surrounding the games because people don't want to put spoilers out there. But sometimes, you know, there won't even be photographs of a room on a game's website. And you really, truly are going in there without any idea of what to expect, um, even as an experienced player. So I just would really like to help new players um, kind of feel more prepared as if, you know, to to remove a little bit of the mystery beforehand so that they can go in with confidence. They might not win the first time, but at least, you know, they're going to be over the sort of nervousness about it. There's a line in the publishing blurb, which is like all the little stuff, <laughs> stuff in there. Um, uh, and the line says the 4,000 year old dexterity puzzles of the Mohenjaro Mohenjo Daro. Mm -hmm. What is that? And will solving one help me master the mysteries of the force? (laughs) Uh, Yes. And yes. Um, Good. Because it really sounds like it. And I got very excited. (laughs) But what is is this? Because I just, I love the name. Yeah. So Mohenjo Daro was um, an ancient civilization. It was in like 2500 BC um, in the area of Pakistan, the Indus Valley. And um, they've just recovered some really amazing artifacts. You know, this is like a whole other podcast to get into that, but they recovered a lot of toys. Um, And so one of the things that I talk about in the book, in the history part, is like play is a human compulsion, right? Humans love to gather in places for lots of reasons, but inevitably when they get together in physical spaces, they're playing. That is facilitated by first transportation technology evolving, right? So um, it begins on foot, by wagon, by boat, eventually trolley and train, and then eventually cars, which brings us to the era that we're in today. And then also computer technology, which gives us different kinds of access to evolve computers and video games and some of the tech that you'll now see in escape rooms. So that's the history side of the book is basically about that. Um, The dexterity toy is one of the first examples that I give in the book because, um, yeah, so in, in Mahenjo Dara, they've recovered this, it's like a little round maze, like a marble maze kind of thing. Mm. You know, you hold it in your palm and you tilt it and you try to get the marble into the center. But in the 1880s, there was a legitimate, as we understand it today, viral craze for that exact model of game. Oh, wow. It was called Pigs and Clover. You know, in the newspaper, they were talking about like people were playing it on the Senate floor and they're all worrying about the fidget spinner of the 1880s. Yeah, exactly. But actually more complicated than a fidget spinner. Like fidget spinners are are like dumb. 
by kids, <laughs> right? You know? Yeah, this it does take skill. But but even then people were like worried about, you know, oh, is this gonna melt people's brains and they're just obsessed with this thing and how you know this can't be good for society. The same thing that people say about games today. Um, so I, I just use that as an example because I think that it's so interesting to see the through lines of, you know, what what is the same between ancient history and today? You know, e- even the pigs in clover had an appearance in Westworld as a reference, so it's still around. Oh, is that the is that the little maze? <laughs> yeah. Point? Oh. Well, well, the the bicameral mind maze is inside the pigs in clover container. Gotcha. Is, oh, that's my the goodness. one. Yeah. Love it. love it all right um is this is this also secretly a book for people who make escape rooms (laughs) um so i do think there's something for everybody like if you're interested in the genre of immersive entertainment the whole history of it i you know i i lead it up to escape rooms but it is also about just like how we got to where we are today you know my my interest is broader than just escape rooms um and i don't think it hurts for people to sort of sit and think about their own games from a beginner's point of view. So it's it's not a design manual at all. I mean, I do talk about like, well, now if you want to try making puzzles to understand them better, here's what that might look like a little bit. But it's not a guide to making your own escape room. Um, that said, I, I do think it is helpful to remember what it was like to be a newbie, to just have no idea what even to expect. Um, and the book can definitely help with that. One more thing uh, before maybe we'll we'll drop into a more casual overtime chat. Catherine, our esteemed executive editor, uh, on the day this is being recorded, uh, caught a little tease on social media of something that you're up to. What are what are you what are you up to? She said something about a green screen or something like that. Yeah, so we have been working hard on both a digital game and uh, our, our next physical, actual physical escape room. Um, of course, significantly delayed by the pandemic, but now very near its completion. Um, so the green screen that Catherine saw is um, for our our online game, which is a sort of um, puzzle romp through time and space. And then our physical game will follow just a couple of months later. Um, and that one is... Uh, here in Portland, Oregon. It's the attic hideout of a teen girl who was obsessed with a ni- an 80s cartoon that never had a final episode. Oh, <laughs> I like that. Uh, I like that premise. I like uh, the premise a lot. That's great. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So, th- so that's what we're working on. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to call for a little overtime to ask you some questions about Portland, about 80s cartoons, and maybe a little bit about a little pandemic check-in because it's been a bit. So, um, Laura, for folks who want to get the book or want to uh, play some of your games, how can they do that? Sure. So I'm online um, on Twitter and at my .com. That's Laura E. Hall, lauraehall.com. And then um, Instagram's Lau Hall. To play our games, that's meridianadventureco.com. And to get the book, those are linked off of both of those sites, but there's also a short link, which is bit.ly, so B-I-T dot L-Y slash planning your escape. All right. Folks who are listening can also check the show notes for all of those links. Laura, thanks for uh, joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me. Back this week for Immersive 101 is Catherine Yu, the executive editor of No Persinium. This is the part of the show where we look at some of the core concepts of Immersive. Catherine, what's on the agenda this week? Here's a big juicy one. Noah, let's talk about agency. What is it and why does it matter? Oh boy, agency. All right, all right. Last week you did the the definition from the website. I'm going to do it this time. So what we have is a quality of the measure of the freedom that participants have in an experience. Okay, what does that mean? (laughs) So if you break it down, there's actually a lot of different flavors of agency. The ones that we at NoPro tend to focus on are around movement, around story, and around emotions. Ooh, like emotional agency. That's, That's an interesting idea. Um, I'm not, I'm not sure if I entirely get it, but it sounds cool. Um, why, why is this idea of agency so important? Like what, what do you, what do you do with it? 
So generally, we're thinking about the purpose of the audience in a particular immersive piece. And they may be moving around and exploring a space. They may be interpreting and responding to actors in different ways. Or they may be literally changing the story. Uh, one thing, especially if you're coming from the video game world, is that agency in an immersive experience doesn't always mean changing the story. Sometimes it does, but sometimes it doesn't. And every different type of immersive experience will provide different kinds of agency for the people participating in it. Would you say that this one is pretty important when it comes to this whole immersive thing? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, it's important to understand what is expected of you as an audience member, and it's important to figure out how you might want to or might not want to take actions in an experience. And so as an audience member, I'm always asking what is possible in the world that I'm in right now? And agency helps me understand that. And if you're a designer, should you be thinking about this? Oh, definitely. Uh, what do you want people to be doing? How do you communicate that? And then, of course, what do you do when people misinterpret or misunderstand? That sounds like a fun topic we can get into another time. Catherine, thank you so much for coming by and giving us another breakdown here in Immersive 101. Awesome. Thank you so much. Can't wait to be back. What it is, Los Angeles? This is Billy the Bobcat here on KYLA, your home for all things funk, adelic, and satisfying to the soul. Joining us now is friend of the show, Sam Roberts, the festival director of IndieCade, here to talk with us about Iron Game Designer. Sam, thanks for popping by. Thanks for having me, Noah. Always a pleasure to get to talk to you. Yeah, I, I wish this was in Parkinson, but, uh, you know, still, uh, it, it's still this year. So, yeah, but uh, someday soon, someday, someday soon, I want to get ice cream with oh, you. Yeah, well, I finally made it to a salt and straw, and I see why you have been obsessively Instagramming about it for way too long, and I need some more ice cream. Uh, just uh, that, that, berry, that berry one that they've got right now. Uh, get out there, people. It's, it's the single best scoop of ice cream I've ever had. And I may be, I may be retired from eating ice cream. It was that <laughs> I threw out the rest of the cone. I, was just, yeah, no. I can't eat the chocolate. This was too good. I, I ate about half the chocolate and I was like, no, this is too good. Anyway, this is not about ice cream. This is about your upcoming, uh, the new season of Iron Game Designer on Twitch. Okay. So we all know Iron Chef, but I don't know Iron Game Designer. Help us with the transition position here with the translation and and this part is very important what do you bite into at the end of the intro video <laughs> each episode oh no that's a great question i wish i had a really good answer for you we've actually tried biting into an apple um but uh it's not the same we, 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 it's not the same it's no. it's just not the same i um uh, I have tried rolling a die. It's not also the same, although it's a little bit more fun. Um, so yeah, I, look, you know Iron Chef, right? Uh, you get brilliant chefs. You put them in a room. They have a bunch of basic ingredients. Here's the stuff you need to cook. And then we unveil the secret ingredient. And they have to make a delicious meal that features that ingredient, right? So for Iron Game Designer, we put together teams, uh, much more so than cooking, game design is a real team sport. You know what I mean? Like uh, there are people who make games by themselves alone in rooms, but most of us make games alone in rooms with other people who are also alone with us. Um, <laughs> that's a game designer joke. Sort of. uh, <laughs> and um, we put together teams of three. Typically these are folks who don't know each other already and haven't worked together, uh, which is like sort of an added twist and complication. Again, we're focusing on what's interesting about game design. And the fact of the matter is that figuring out how to bring together different personalities with different skills to do something really cool is a big inherent part of the challenge of games. So we like to factor that in. Um, we give them basic ingredients. Um, this show runs on Twitch. It's built for the internet age. Everybody dial 
files in, frankly, from other parts of the world using the internet. So our basic ingredients are on the internet. We give them uh, online dice rolling tools, other random number generators. Um, they have access to social media and to video conferencing tools and to so, collaborative so, tools like so the Google Doc. The games they make, uh, you know, could be just about anything. Could be an alternate reality game. Could be like a kind of a, a live interaction game. They're, they're, it can go wide here. Very wide. In fact, generally, we're asking them to have a playable version of the rule set ready at the end of the show. The show's only 90 minutes long. Uh, so most of these games are games that you could play at home using these same basic ingredients, um, right? Uh, we're not using game engines. You're not going to need a computer. You're not going to download software. This is a PDF of rules that you and your friends can play with either on the internet or in person. Um, and for the secret ingredients, we uh, vary it up a little bit, but generally we're in the zone of giving an inspirational piece of media that has a feeling or a mood to it. And we're asking for a game or experience that expresses that feeling or mood. Who's on base for the next season and what can we expect from that mix? Uh, well, we have some ideas. Um, there's only a few people committed for next season. I can tell you that on July 19th, we have our final, uh, episode of the summer season. And in that episode, uh, we will have a really interesting and fun mix of folks. We have Sam Rosenthal, who's the, uh, creative director of the game band who made Blaseball, uh, which some of your viewers may be aware of. Um, we have, uh, a wonderful fellow who's name I'm blanking on who created the, uh, Olive Garden LARP. I don't know if your viewers are familiar with the Olive Garden LARP, but it is a one-page set of rules for playing a live-action role-playing game around the free breadsticks at an Olive Garden. Um, we also, uh, for this episode, have Clara Fernandez-Vera, who is a game academic who writes about games and Shakespeare and um, teaches at NYU. Um, we have Mitu Kandakar. Uh, Mitu is a games academic also at NYU who makes games around uh, interesting, new, unique interfaces and works on making games for broad new audiences that leverage those interfaces. Um, we also have Yuting Su, who made Octobo, which is a plush toy for children that talks to them and senses things. So you like play learning games by putting stuff in its hands. Um, and we have Scott Anderson, who is a game designer and engineer from the early games of indie who worked on a great game a long time ago called Shadow Physics, where you moved things to change where there's shadows fell on the background and then played a game manipulating those shadows. Um, so uh, it's a cool mix. Every episode we're going for folks who come from traditional video game design, folks who come from tabletop and real world game design, and then some ringers who are from academics or other places, people with a boatload of experience uh, about running teams and managing that's fantastic. And so on the 19th, it's the finale. And about the end of the episode, people are going to have the games they can play. Yeah. And all the games are actually available on the Iron Game Designer website at indiecade.com. Uh, I think it's indiecade.com slash Iron Game Designer. You can download PDFs of every game created this season by Iron Game Designer guests. Um, and then next season will come next summer or spring. But I can tell you now that there will be one very special episode uh, right before the festival uh, this fall. So in early October, we will have a special episode promoing the festival. Uh, I can't tell you much about who's going to be in it because it's kind of a secret but i can tell you that we are exploring the world of systems and we are asking for some interesting folks who are not necessarily game designers to join us all right uh i'm gonna jump ahead here a little bit while i've got you here uh i just would like you to tell the gang about maze on planet seven because this you've been doing this uh with Sistine phoenix and this kind of blew up in in the good way that things blow up yeah, uh, I would love to talk about Maze on Planet 7. I'm super excited about it. So um, it's a live stream tabletop RPG, which we are all familiar with now. Um, some of your audience may watch Critical Role or listen to these podcasts that are recordings of live plays. Um, but uh, what Maze on Planet 7 is, is it's a live stream 
TTRPG, where we're trying to, instead of sort of like, let you watch a bunch of people have fun playing D&D, which, don't get me wrong, is awesome. Um, we want to have you watch people having fun playing D&D in a way where we tell a cohesive story in a reasonable amount of time and give you, the folks at home, a chance to play along. Right, So our episodes only run for two hours. They're still live, so everything's happening in person right there. Um, because they're live, you as the audience gets a chance to vote on polls that happen throughout the episode. And those polls influence how our dungeon master, Satine Phoenix, uh, sets up each scene of the episode where the players then have to play D&D with that scene, uh, overcoming a problem through cleverness, through character abilities, or through conversations and role playing. Um, the structure of an episode is that it has two acts. Each act has two big scenes of gameplay, and all of those scenes of gameplay are connected with... Um, narrative interstitial content that comes from the framework of what we would call a reality television show. Uh, so you get a chance to get inside the characters' heads where they have confessionals or they're interviewed by our show's host, Fozzie, the psionic barbarian, um, or where they have an intimate player scene that we get to spy in on and see what's happening with them. Um, and using these devices and tools, we're also, over the course of a 20-episode season, telling a larger story about these awesome heroes from planets across the universe who have been stolen from their homes and forced to escape the maze that exists on Planet 7. All right. Like Iron Game Designer, that's on Twitch. Correct no, that is on Facebook Gaming. Facebook um, Gaming. Oh my god, that's wow. right. Uh, so you watch the Maze on Planet Seven at Facebook got Facebook dot com backslash Maze on Planet Seven. Uh, follow us to get the notifications. We air every Tuesday and Thursday night at seven p.m. Pacific time. All right, that's how to get to Maze to the Maze on Planet Seven. Uh, if you are not kidnapped by an interdimensional being and just dropped in there, uh, at good luck. Uh, <laughs> but back to Iron Game Designer. Uh, if folks want to watch the finale on the nineteenth, where should they go? They should simply go to twitch.tv backslash Indiecade. Uh, the season finale will air on July 19th at 10 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. Again, at twitch.tv backslash Indiecade. And that is Pacific time we're talking. Pacific, yes. Fantastic. Sam, thank you so much for coming around and giving us a breakdown on what's happening on the upcoming finale of Iron Game Designer. So welcome, Noah. You are so welcome. All right, we have just about reached the end of our time together for this week. Got a little bit more for you before we leave, a little bit more tape. I want to take a breath. Ah. Um, this is... A total joy to do. I literally wish I had more time to uh, do all this. Uh, literally wish I had more time. Uh, it's absolutely, absolutely the facts of it all. Um, this is the part of the show where I kind of let the, the, the written part go away, just get back to sort of the way the podcast used to be, me rambling into a microphone for a little bit. I hope you're really enjoying. Uh, if this is your first time with us, please go back into the feed. Check out last week's episode where we went to Omega Mart. Uh, pretty fantastic episode. You also might want to check out the Review Crew show. There were two episodes in between these, and we have been putting bonus material in the feed. We're having uh, some uh, computer authentication issues with Acast and Patreon. They're not uh, playing well together. Uh, we are talking with those teams, uh, but there's I'm spending so much time making the podcast that uh, it's hard to get on with customer service and fix that. I hope to have that fixed sooner rather than later. Um, speaking of the Patreon, um, it really is a big part of <laughs> big part of what we do. It's everything we do. It's how we manage to do this. Patreon.com slash no proscenium. Um, and you know what? I am, I'm going to do it now. I've got a little more tape for you. But right now, I'm going to give a shout out to our uh, our, our sustaining backers here. And indeed, uh, as is known, one of them is Ari Herstand. I mentioned that, uh, you know, you hear Ari's name on the show just about every week. Uh, he has been backing us for about four or five years now. Um, and, uh, look at that grassroots district. Um, 
we did not cover the show because of that. We covered the show because I knew he'd been working on it for five years. And I was really interested. And then I checked it out and it's like, wow, this is, this is worth covering. Uh, don't take my word for it. Check out uh, Kevin's review on the review roundup. Uh, and he also talks about it on the review crew show. So don't take my word for it. Uh, take someone who has no financial relationship with Ari whatsoever. Um, one could even argue that uh, without Ari, there'd be no, no pro without no pro Kevin wouldn't have to write reviews. So, uh, <laughs> That's one way of seeing it. Our sustaining backers are Ari Hurstan, Brittany, Deborah Robinson, Elaine, Emily Gillette, Lonnie Hanson, Paul F., Mark Balthazar, Samuel Mystery, Sydney Guillory, and Jan Budman. Do you want to join them? Do you want to become a $5 backer? Do you want to get that bonus feature when, when those finally become available again? Two or $5, patreon.com slash no persinium. All right. Uh, there's a whole lot more to come. We're going to put... Uh, the interview with Daisha into the feed next week. That's going to be available to everybody. It was a great interview. I want everyone to be able to listen to that. Uh, you can also, if you want to check out uh, the panel that we did for the North Bend Film Festival. Oh, you didn't know we did that? Yeah, we did uh, crafting immersive experiences during COVID for the North Bend Film Festival, which is on, you know, let's just play you a little bit of tape. Uh, this is Darren Herzeg, uh, the creator of I Swing, the co-creator, I should say, of I Swing, You Swing. Here's a little taste of that panel. Sort of other characters that I think um, people would prefer to hang back on and just be a little bit more passive. There's no way to be completely passive in I Swing, You Swing. You got to swing or what are you doing uh, at our at our love lodge? But um, um, which isn't to say that they have to like swing. They swing. do not have to swing. Yeah, they, they don't have to. to. They have to. They have to swing. Put you put they the gotta swing. Yeah. Yes, if yeah, they yeah, want to, yeah. if they want a real swing, they got to turn their character and mic off because I don't want to hear it or see it. But that said. <laughs> Um, I think, I think, be careful what you're inviting into your zoom home. I'm just saying, don't do it. Don't, don't, don't bring, for those of you out there, don't, don't bring your, your swing life into my zoom home. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think that different level of experience has really helped create an environment that is conducive to all different types of players and participants and, uh, people looking for an experience off the beaten track. You can catch more of the panel at the North Bend Film Festival. Uh, check the show notes uh, for the links to it all. And I Swing, You Swing will swing again soon enough uh, online. Uh, I, I hear nothing but good things about the show. I am deeply intrigued about a paternity mystery set in the 1970s. Uh, perhaps those people uh, listen to some Brassroots District. I, I see a crossover here. Uh, people should holler out. Uh, speaking of crossovers, uh, a little bit earlier in the show, you uh, heard uh, a DJ from KYLA. Uh, you might recognize that voice. That that was Andrew Lieb. So, uh, and that is from some of the materials from Brassroots District. Got to give the shout out there. There is so much going on in the immersive world right now uh, that uh, I, I do have trouble keeping track of it all. But we do. We do everything we can uh, at nopersinium.com and everythingimmersive.com, our sister site. We're not just this podcast. There's also the Everything Immersive group on Facebook that we run, and we have our Discord. Please connect with us at one of these spots. We would love to hear from you um, straight up. Full stop. Big thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin uh, for being the voice at, that you hear at the start of the show. Her show is opening up this weekend in Los Angeles. Yes, Los Angeles is going back to mass mandate on Sunday. Uh, I know most of you are doing your part, and I thank you for that. Uh, I used to end the show during during the deepest part of the pandemic with thank you for the wearing the mask. Once again, thank you for wearing the mask. This isn't fun, but we want to keep on making work. We want this, we want, we want to be able to end the pandemic. So uh, I'm so glad everyone is doing their part. Keep it up. You are appreciated. Do not succumb to those who want to be just like, whatever. Uh, yeah. YOLO is YOLO until it's, oh no. Uh, we'll just put it that way. That doesn't work, but I'm leaving it in. This is the rambly part of the podcast. Um, 
Let's see. We've done the backers. Uh, the music uh, for this episode is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. Uh, we did use a little sound from uh, freesound.org this time out, uh, specifically a track from uh, Gowler Music. Uh, that was at Radio Static. You hear? I uh, want to give a shout out to them for putting their stuff up on freesound.org, making podcasts sound better since uh, maybe last century or something like that. I don't know. Did we have podcasts last century? Nah, yeah, basically. All right. Um, <laughs> there's probably something intelligent I'm supposed to tell you, but I am very tired. And uh, there's another show next week's show. What's coming up on next week's show? Hey, remember when Catherine mentioned that there were some Emmys that went out and that Little Cinema was one of the folks who got some well, Emmy nominations? I just spoiled it. It's Little Cinema. They got an Emmy nomination this week. We're, we're talking with them next week that's the main story there's also a bunch of other fun stuff going to be in there uh, michael anderson is joining us from argn uh looks like uh we've got uh, a few other things up our sleeve and of course the pick of the week and more immersive 101 massive thanks to everyone on the team over at no proscenium to kevin to blake to patrick uh who is going above and beyond to danielle who i hope is feeling better in denver right now uh to leah davis uh who was on a road trip um and of course always to the executive editor uh, Catherine Yu, who if she wasn't doing all that she does, I wouldn't be able to do all that I do. So uh, give a shout out to Catherine when you see her. That's enough for now. The music for No Persinium, I think I mentioned, is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society. And until next time, I'll see you at the show. <laughs>